Okay. Dear Ajahn, Oh, must. Please write in English, not in uh, Cantonese. <laughs> must Nimitta be present before going into deeper meditation? Thank you. It's not must, it's helpful. So that's one of the reasons why, when you do it naturally, it's part of the process, but sometimes that people can almost like just go very quickly past nimittas and into the jhanas. But nevertheless, the nimittas were talked about by the Buddha. Now sometimes people say, oh no, the nimittas are not the Buddha's teachings. The, uh, the Buddha just talked about the jhanas. But if you look in Majjhiminikaya 108, Upakilesa Sutta. And there the Buddha was teaching Anuruddha, Kimbala, and Nandiya, these three amazing monks, just how to uh, develop those nimittas and take them into deep meditation of jhanas. And there's a, you know, it's basically the whole sutta's on that. It starts off, though, with a kind of really... Uh, I teach this to the monks a lot, almost like the perfect monastery. There were just three monks. And whenever they went out for arms round, whoever came back first, you know, started eating, then cleared up. Whoever came back last would do the final cleaning. And they would never need to speak to each other. You know, if some water needed to be carried into the hall, they would just point to it and they would just do all this work silently. And there wasn't that much to be done. But what they did do, once every five or six days, four, five or six days, they would meet together and discuss the Dhamma. And that's all they did. And so the activity was in such a minimal amount. And then one day they were all meditating and then this other monk came in to their monastery. And they had a gatekeeper just to, you know, to guard them. Just, you know, like a, a, a Christina or Scotty or someone. And this gatekeeper said to this monk, shush. You know, there are other monks here meditating. And the, the monk who said, oh, just come to see them. He said, be quiet. But one of the monks heard the sound of that uh, visitor and he came out of meditation and told the gatekeeper off, don't stop that monk, that's the Buddha. He's come to visit us. And so the Buddha sat down and just talked to them about how they were practicing, starting off with just their general lifestyle. They hardly talked to each other, they had plenty of food, and they just, together they would look after one another. And they said, that just my fellow monks' mind was my mind. It was such harmony together. And then when the Buddha asked, you know, how's your meditation? They said, it's going very well. And the Buddha said, of course. With so much harmony together, such a simple lifestyle, what can you expect? It's going very well. It just, the Buddha said a bit more about the nimittas. 
on all the problems which a nimitta, you can face with a nimitta. Too much energy, too little energy. But the most important part of that was like what you all know, the wanting, the excitement. Wow, this is really a nimitta. Oh, I've got a nimitta. I've got a nimitta. I've got a nimitta. <laughs> or the fear, which comes, ooh, it's a bit much for me. So anyway, the, the Buddha gave them all this wonderful advice. And these became like three really great monks. Especially the leader, that was Anuruddha. Lovely simile. It's in there, in the Majjhima Dear Ajahn Brahm, do you know of any arahats? Yeah. The Buddha was an arahat. It's hard to know, and if a person is very, uh, really is an arahat, they would never tell you. There's a good reason for that. We're not allowed to tell people of our attainments. Because what happened, Ajahn Chah, and I would, because he's passed away now, I just don't mind telling you that fellow filled all the, ticked all the boxes for being an arahat. So I say that he was. I can't convince anybody though. How do we know? The only thing you can do, you can know if a person isn't an arahat. That's pretty easy to see. But if they are not, uh, if, uh, if they are enlightened, sometimes they keep it quiet. And there's a good reason for that. First of all, I was just a young monk. Just went to Wat Pong to be with Ajahn Chah. And I already mentioned to you some of the food we had to eat, which was often disgusting. You only had one meal a day. So I couldn't say I'll have something better this afternoon or this evening. Just one chance for the meal and that was it. And so this day after finishing the arms round, we came and sat in the hall and the same old um, stick, no, they gave sticky rice, the same old rotten fish curry was brought in. But then we saw a, like a pickup truck arrive. It was one of Ajahn Chah's disciples from the city and brought all these pots of food for us. And as soon as I saw that through the window, I could feel saliva coming in my mouth. Today we're going to have a really good meal. But then he came in and he asked one of the senior monks, where's Ajahn Chah? And the senior monk replied, Oh, he's in the city. He's been invited to a house blessing. He's eating there. So the man went back into his car and drove off to that house. You saw the food. You smelt it. <laughs> you fantasized about it. And it all drove off. That was a lot of suffering a young 23, 24-year-old monk. <laughs> but that's what happens. Because sometimes you do get more bang for your bucks when you give something to an enlightened monk or nun than you just give it to any old monk or nun. So once people find out, 
that monk is enlightened. Oh, he gets so much stuff and other monks get nothing. It's just nature, that's all. Who would you rather give food to in the time of the Buddha? To the Buddha or to Devadatta? <laughs> Devadatta tried to kill the Buddha. So that's why it's kept quiet. And the next thing to tell you, that bang for bucks, in other words, you know, making donations to, to people. Good monks don't receive any money. So you give me any money, so put it in the box. It's all shared. And it's also, the Buddha stated this very clearly, it's much more merit to give a gift to the Sangha than even to the Buddha. So if ever you're giving any gifts, make it to the Sangha, not just to one monk. And also, the highest gift you can possibly give you know, is, is to the Jewel Sangha. You know who the Jewel Sangha is? The Sangha of monks and bhikkhunis. Do you have a Sangha like that in Singapore? It's hard to find. So when I did facilitate that ordination of bhikkhunis, I made it so that any of your donations can have the biggest return of your investment ever. <laughs> I like that saying that because I told you this morning that sometimes the poor nuns, sort of, you know, they don't get the respect they deserve. And I said this morning, why? Remember that the Metta Sutta? We chant that every day. Let none deceive another, whatever living beings there may be, or meeting nuns. <laughs> that's not what it says, but that's not what it, people hear. <laughs> Anyhow, that's only just funny games. So, if you did see a, a monk or a nun, they said they were an arahat, you know for sure they're not. Some people use that notice of uh, lift up their profile, become a more important person. It is basically ego. That is why, I think I said this one of the first days here, what well, the Buddha said that these two monks came up to him and one said that uh, an, an enlightened being never thinks they're superior or inferior to anyone, nor the same. Buddha said, yeah, well done. Another one said the same. Someone who's you know, seen the Dharma, who's an arahat, never thinks they're better or worse or the same. Yes, said the Buddha. And then Ananda you know, uh, was told by the Buddha, those were two newly enlightened arahats. That's how they let him know that they're a table. They're not better, they're not worse, they're not the same. 
all that measuring is gone. There's no sense of superiority or inferiority, just a sense of disappearance. Anyone? Dear Ajahn Brahm, which part of meditation what which part of meditation is one at what what part of meditation is one at when one feels lightness of the body sorry which part of meditation is one at when one feels lightness and the body disappears? You're at the stage of light body and disappearance. Look, you don't need to measure anything. If you measure anything, I say, oh, if you come in interviews, I always say, oh, very good, very good. I say very good to everything, no matter what you do. You say, I actually meditated for five minutes. Very good. I managed actually just to sit up straight. Very good. And that's not just kind of laughing. You want to be encouraged. And if I say that this is just such, such a, a basic form of part of the meditation, how do you feel? Blech. And if I say, you get a jhana, and I say, yes, a jhana, well done. And I say, but it's only the first jhana. There's another day left. Come on. Sometimes you can see that when we have gradations on the path, it just serves either to feel that one's done all this effort and you haven't got anywhere, or that you got somewhere but it's not far enough, or you got really a long way but there's still a long way to go. It kind of misses the point of meditation. This is not about attainments, but about you disappearing. That's why when the lightness there's lightness and the body disappears. That's great. That's really amazing. Well done. But if you could just watch one breath, I'd say the same. That's amazing. Well done. You just relax and see just what happens. You don't judge. Then it goes very fast and very good. Anyway, to answer your question properly, the lightness of the, and the body disappears. Really, that should be just you know, when you can start to see nimittas. The body's disappeared, the breath disappeared, and you can start to see these beautiful lights in the mind. How is it possible for good developed monks to be able to read others' minds? Actually, I don't know how it works, just sometimes that happens. But honestly, you don't need to be afraid. Once you've read one or two minds, you never want to read a mind again. <laughs> it's like a badly written novel. It's boring. Your mind doesn't deserve to be read. It's not interesting enough. So when you get some jhanas, then I can read your mind, or someone can read your mind. It's much more interesting. It's like a pub novel, most people's minds. Dear Ajahn, why isn't relaxation of the physical body mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta? It is mentioned in other suttas, 
and it's just uh, you relax the body to make it disappear. You cannot allow the body, you cannot have the body disappearing when it's got so much activity, which is always disturbing you. It's hard to do that. That's why I don't know why sometimes your body's about to disappear and it looks really nice and peaceful, and then bang! Somebody bangs the door. Well, worse than that, worse than that, mosquitoes. And they come, because the mosquitoes, they're sadistic. They don't just bite you and get it over with. Bzz, 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 bzz. Always in your ear. Bzz, 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 bzz. And I've known so many mosquitoes do that, I can translate that now. So I'm going to bite you. I'm coming. <laughs> You know, sometimes you're, you're really kind as monks, and sometimes you just, they'd land on your hand and say, okay, come on, just bite. Just get it over with. You know what these mosquitoes would do? Is they do what we call in Western Australia, it's a mining state. They do an exploratory drill, first of all. <laughs> you watch them. They sort of put their nose to other proboscis, whatever it is, and then, obviously, they didn't like that spot, so they take it out again, walk a few steps, and, and give you another sort of uh, <laughs> bite. They do three or four of them till they find somewhere nice. They take advantage of monks' kindness. <laughs> and that's true, that's no exaggeration. Anyway, is it implied, like a kind of idiom in part, that awareness of the breath involves the preliminary calming of the rest of the physical body, pretty much so. Or where the monks and nuns to whom the Anapanasati was taught so wise and calm that they didn't carry physical stress and could go to the breath object without having to relax the physical body. I think they'll probably have less stress than human beings today, but still, it's really good you relax the body, sit comfortably, so the body can actually disappear. It doesn't matter, it's still a wonderful thing to do. In Ajahn, ah, Charles' simile of the broken glass cup, I didn't understand why the understanding of Anicca led to compassion. Oh, the broken glass cup. Yeah, I remember, I'm just trying to recall it now in Anicca. That's right. The broken cast, broken cups, and it could be one of these cups. It doesn't have to be glass. He said, whenever you have like a glass or a cup like this, when you look at it, always remember it's cracked. Can you see the crack? Can you see the crack? When he said this simile, I said, I can't see the crack. He said, because it's microscopic. But it is there. So because I know this cup is cracked, it's got a crack in it, I have to really treat it carefully. I can't kick it or throw it around. I've got to make sure when I put it down, I put it down in a place where it could be safe. It's already got the crack there. I'm just going to make sure uh, it doesn't open up. If this was a plastic cup, I could throw it down, kick it. I would need to care for it. It's unbreakable. 
This one is breakable. Just like maybe your parents or a loved one. They may be alive right now, but they're cracked. Even Ajahn Brahm, you've been watching me for days, you know I'm cracked. <laughs> you've got to care for me, because if you abuse me, that crack will open up and I will pass away. That's why when you understand everything is cracked, that's why you care for it. That's where the compassion comes from, to preserve it. And I've been watching you for the last few days. My goodness, you're all really cracked. <laughs> <laughs> so please look after yourselves. In other words, you don't push too hard when you're meditating, when you're practicing. Have a good rest, eat wisely, and just relax to the max, because that's the best way of preserving you know, your body and your mind, so you can do the best you possibly can in this world. So that simile of the cracked cup, I thought was always a very useful one to understand why people die, and in the meantime, to know you're just like that, and you must realize you're cracked, and look after yourself, and look after others, to make the best use of the cup. If all things are to be broken or disappear, why do we need to care about them? Because you know, they get reborn again, you have to do the thing all over again. All kids who go to school or university leave school at the end of the year. And if you don't care for your studies, you have to go back and do it all over again. You have to repeat the class. Would you like to go back to school? Are you finished with school? In your next life, <laughs> you get reborn again, and you have to do that all over again. You're not free of school yet. You get up in the morning, and you tell your mother, I don't want to get up. I'm tired. I don't want to get to school. That happened over here. There was this mother, and she went to her son's bedroom. Son, get up, it's time to go to school. And the son said, but mummy, I don't want to go to school. But you have to go to school. Give me one good reason why I should go to school, mummy. No one likes me there. You know, the teachers don't like me, and the other children don't like me. Why should I go to school? And mummy said, because you're the principal. <laughs> <laughs> Teachers don't like principals. <laughs> Kids certainly don't. <laughs> and even the principal, a headmaster or headmistress, they probably don't like going to school in the morning. <laughs> and they have mummies and the mummies have to wake them up. Come on, son, get up, go to school. So, if all the things are to be broken or disappear, why do we need to care about them so they can last a long time and be the best use for yourself and others? It's going to be broken anyway. It seems meaningless to care. Really? You're going to die. 
it's meaningless to, to eat and sleep. You're going to die anyway. Get it over with. Is that a wise thing to say? How many of you can do that? Of course, it's a ridiculous thing to say. I always thought Anicca leads to detachment. It does. Somewhat indifference to life. No, it understands what you need to do. It's the nature of life. And after a while, when you understand the nature truly, of course, you know how to care for life. And the outcomes, you care for the cup as best you possibly can. You know, this jhana grove is going to decay and decay and decay, get more and more cracks in the walls, more and more the, the wood floor will need to be replaced. We try and make sure we care for it as much as we possibly can, clean up your rooms. So that would mean that it can last a long time. So you can come here many, many, many more times. So that's actually the right way of looking at it. Dear Ajahn Brahm, how many fully enlightened people do you know? Uncountable. <laughs> I like the word uncountable because it gives you the idea of many but also means you can't number them. Just like when people say to me, yeah, we know, to, actually I don't know how much uh, Bodhinyana Singapore charges you for this retreat, but sometimes people say, Ajahn Brahm, how much do you get from this retreat? How much do you charge? And my fees are priceless. I say that because, <laughs> I don't know if I told you this one before, true story, this lady called, how much do you charge for the talk tonight? And the first time I got a call, I said, nothing. Actually, it was a Polish woman. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> How much do you charge for, the, for the, the talk? I said, nothing. She said, well, you can't be any good, can you? <laughs> and she hung up. <laughs> well, maybe she said it in Polish, but something like that. Yeah, there's a couple of stories. I'm getting out on that way. Combine the two stories. <laughs> anyway, now there's another, another, the other story. How much do you charge for the talk? I said nothing. And she said, you don't understand. How much money do I have to pay? I said, zero. She paused. And then she said, how many dollars and cents do I have to to get in the door. Said nothing. Just come in. We won't take your name and address and harass you later. Just come in and just, if you like the talk, fine. If you don't like the talk, you can go out at any time. But then, and this particular version of the story, she asked me on the phone, well, what do you guys get out of this then? And that time, you know, she was really respectful. She really wanted to know, why do monks spend their time giving talks to people? Saying the same talks, but you know why I always say the same talks? Because I always get the same questions. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So anyway, <laughs> it was a nice question. Why do people, like monks, give talks? You don't have to. Why do we care? Why do we give? I've always noticed that when you give, you get so much more happiness than if you take that thing yourself. Very often that's happened. And you get sort of like a glass of milk or like coconut ice cream we were talking about in monastery the other day. And you get something which you really, really like. You know somebody else likes it too, so you give it to them. You don't get anything. You get this beautiful sense of joy and happiness. What you've done, you've turned somebody on, made them know that they were happy. I think I did tell you that before I became a monk, I had a motorbike. Then I thought, I'm going to Thailand to become a monk. What am I going to do with my motorbike? I can't take it to Thailand with me. Have you ever seen a monk on top of a motorbike? (laughs) So, uh, my mother was still alive at this time. And so she said, I know someone who might, might like that motorbike. So they came, they had a look at it. It was a good working order, vroom, vroom, vroom. And then the guy said, how much do you want for it? And I was smart enough to say, let's settle up upstairs in front of my mother. So I went upstairs and he said again, how much do you want for it? I said, do you like it? He said, yes. I said, it's yours. I don't need money as a monk. That's one of my lovely memories. And my mother said afterwards, he was stunned. He's getting this nice expensive motorbike for free. And I remember his expression. Is your son okay? (laughs) And that was my mother's job. And said, yeah, yeah, you know, I gave birth to him. This is what he's like. (laughs) He doesn't need the money. He's going to become a monk. And I really enjoyed that. I gave my bike, quite expensive, to know to someone who just needed one for nothing. This beautiful sort of charity. And I wasn't a... I wasn't a, a monk yet, he wasn't a monk, he was just giving something to a, a nice person. I love those sorts of things, giving something. Anyway, uh, is it any chance for a lay person to become fully enlightened without celibate? You can, but once you're enlightened, that's it. You have to be celibate. You have to, this is an interesting, uh, status by many times, first of all I thought this was, can't be true, but it was true. If you become enlightened, fully enlightened on this retreat, you have to ordain. As a monk or as a nun, you just can't live in this world. If you try to live in this world, they said within seven days, (laughs) you will die. And at first I thought, oh, come on, that's a bit uh, hard to understand. But then later on, now honestly, you see that when you do get close to enlightenment or are enlightened, it's like in those deep meditations, your will vanishes. The sense of self which drives the will is no longer there. So basically there's nothing to do anymore. 
no purpose for your life unless you live your life to be a field of merit, as it's said, for other beings. You go there and teach, it doesn't matter if it hurts you or if you're tired, you teach because that gives this body and mind purpose. There's no other purpose, you're already enlightened. And that purpose of being able to serve and help others in the deepest possible way, that's the only thing which will keep you alive. There's no reason why not to be a monk or a nun. So that's what happens. I know many of you may get scared. I don't want to be a monk. I don't want to be a nun. I've still got mothers and fathers. I've got a partner as well. Oh my goodness, how am I going to talk to him about it? Hello darling, I've just been to China Grove for a week and I'm a nun now. <laughs> Would I be happy? So that's what it said, and I actually fully support that. It's the same when people say, you know, with uh, meditation jhanas, are there any dangers to getting to these deep meditations? There are. I've got to be honest with you. You lose all your hair. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't want to be a monk or not. Why not? It's a beautiful lifestyle. People have this idea that being a nun, why are they called nuns? Because none of this, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a monk's life is just so dreary and dull and so harsh. You can't do this and you can't do that. You don't want to do anything. You just want to meditate. So it's the most beautiful lifestyle. No, I'm going to stop talking like that now. It's very hard, very difficult being a monk. No pleasure. I can't, I can't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying that because it's one of my sufferings. We've got a monastery over the road and it's just so hard to expand it. There's too many monks already and there's so many monks that actually want to be monks. And... It, at the moment there, there's sorry, 23 monks, about 8 or 7 novices ready to ordain. And there's so many others. There are all these Anagaricas. You've seen some of those Anagaricas over there. One of those was uh, Mikko from Finland. Has he gone back yet? Or today or tomorrow? Well, the poor fellow was just coming up and just talking to me yesterday after lunch and saying, I don't want to go back to Finland, I want to be a monk. He's a really good man. Jesus. There's hardly any opportunity, no loophole to get him a visa to stay further. And I asked him, apparently there's there's this rich person's opportunity. I saw it in the website, 888 visa. If you invest 15 million in Australia, <laughs> then you can get this visa almost straight away. And said, have you got 15 million? <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> and that's, that's suffering for me because, you know, somebody really wants to be a, a monk or wants to be a nun. 
and there's no space for them. You've been to Damasara, our nuns' monastery here? You go there, it's full of nuns. Nuns all over the place. Wonderful. But more nuns want to ordain. It's so difficult to get the space for them. If you haven't got space, you can't get visa. Anyway, that's why you try and make monasteries or uh, nuns' monasteries in other jurisdictions. So any woman from uh, Singapore who wants to ordain, we get a monastery in Singapore. Is that hard to do? You bet. I saw all this beautiful land in Singapore. We make a lovely nice monastery. But it's a golf course. <laughs> Even you can ask of Bhikkhuni Chanda this. Now she wanted to find a nice place for a nun's monastery in UK. And I did some, I mean, I know London, I was brought up there. And so I found this amazing place for a, a nun's monastery. It would be gorgeous. Yeah, it's called Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Imagine if that was a nun's monastery. You could go to London, you'd have a nice place to stay, like, you know, Jarna Grove, but instead of going to Jarna Grove, it would be in Buckingham Palace. There's lots of rooms there. And at that time, Queen Elizabeth, you know, she can't use all those rooms herself. She's got lots of other palaces somewhere. She can give one to the nuns, only one palace. We've got these beautiful gardens in the back, very easy access. Victoria Station is just around the corner. You can even have helicopters land in uh, Buckingham Palace. Don't you think that would be a wonderful idea to get a petition so that now King Charles, he can offer Buckingham Palace to the nuns' monastery? Sorry? Good idea. I'll get I, don't, I can't have a gold watch because I can't touch gold. I'll get a, a tin one and just... <laughs> you know, I like fantasies like that. That's monk fantasies. Anyway... Thank you for your kindness and compassion for us, for all sentient beings. Much gratitude. Question. To begin the breath meditation, the five senses must be calmed, and the five hindrances not present. No. The, you're calming the five senses, and you're calming the hindrances, but you know what it's like. And sometimes these thoughts come up, sometimes irritations return. You haven't had that irritation for a long time. Anger eating monsters come in, you're tired, you've got too much energy and restless. So the five hindrances are present at the beginning of the meditation, but your job is to calm them. In other words, to understand what these five hindrances are and realize you don't need to encourage them. And if you can just be in this present moment, it's very nice. A nice thing about the present moment is there's no past or future, so there can be no ill will. Something needs to have happened, unpleasant things happened to have ill will. And if you're in the present moment, that all disappears. And as for the future, you know, the future is, if the future disappears, there can't be any wanting. 
desire, craving needs a place in the future to land for it to sort of exist. And if the future is discarded, you know, the desire and will just can't exist. And when those two go, they're the big ones, then you don't get tired. It's amazing how much energy gets used in the brain. That's one of the reasons why when I saw the brain in an autopsy, I couldn't believe how small, what it was. That small thing causes so many problems. <laughs> so anyway, the, when the wants and not wants disappear, the mind is very peaceful. And after you, the peace is there for a while, you don't get tired. You don't have restlessness. And the mind also becomes clear is where the doubt disappears. So the fight, the, if you know how to do it, calming the five hindrances is not that hard. When the hindrances start to disappear, that's when it's much easier to discard the five, the five senses. Okay. How to keep the hindrances at bay? Sloth and torpor and restlessness. Sloth and torpor and restlessness are made of just thinking too much. You get tired. But it's not just that. Because I recall I was just very much a, a, a victim of sloth and torpor in my early years as a monk in northeast Thailand. It was really tough. You know what we used to do? Oh, oh actually, I'm going to stop that story. There's too many other questions to do. But one thing I did find, I was always sleepy. Nothing worked. And then I had to renew my visa in Bangkok. When I went down to Bangkok to renew my visa, there was this lovely new monks' accommodation built in Wat Bawan. And you know, being a forest monk, we could make use of that. And so had a proper, not, not actually not a proper bed, but a proper mattress. In the northeast, we just sleep on grass mats. And it was kept really clean, had a window, it was quiet at night. And we found out. Oh, no, first of all, uh, because uh, we were away from the monastery, that there was no morning chanting, no evening chanting, so we could sleep as much as we wanted. When I was uh, a monk in this monastery in northeast Thailand, four and a half hours was all we were allowed during the whole day. Only four and a half. No wonder I was tired every morning. But here, was you can sleep much longer, about six or seven hours. And then, you went for arms round, and you got delicious food. Never once did I get a frog or a rotten fish in Bangkok. You got sort of edible stuff. And then afterwards, we found one of the rooms was not used early in the morning. So we asked if we could have the key to meditate in it. It had an air con. Oh, to get the temperature back down to the kind of temperature you were used to. I still can't believe it, that in this temperature right now, 
so many have got blankets wrapped around you. <laughs> I would boil with those blankets on. As I got bare shoulders, it's comfortable for me. I let the robe come down because it's nice and cool for me. In my heart, I don't wear the robe or in the, my room because it's much cooler. I was made in England. <laughs> my my um, body likes cool. It's got used to it over growing up. So, when I went into this air-conditioned room after a good sleep, a nice, a good food to digest, I wasn't sleepy at all. I didn't fight sloth and torpor. You were well-rested, and you could meditate really easily. And I re- realised the importance of comfort. I mean, not sort of excess comfort, but just a temperature where you feel comfortable, you've had a reasonable food that day before, and you've had a reasonable night's sleep. And the meditation was so easy. This is also a cause for the disappearance of sloth and torpor. That's why from the very beginning of this retreat, I've encouraged you, when you're tired, we've got these amazing rooms for you. You've got these beds. Please make use of them. Sleep well. Have a nice shower when you need a nice shower. Eat plenty for yourself so you don't get overfed, but so you feel energy and try and get a temperature which is comfortable for you. Now, of course, in here there's so many people who just got to kind of average it out. But it's always your room. And in your room you can make it as peaceful and quiet and as cool as you need. Anyway, regarding black colour experience during deep meditation, is it also similar, I've to not good enough keeping precepts. No, that's totally different. Not good enough keeping precepts, that makes it dull. This black nimitta which this gentleman's seen was so strong, beautiful. So it's just like the colour is not important, but just its beauty, its strength. That's important. Today, as you were speaking, I was... something fully, listening to your words, or mindfully, listening to your words and also silence between your words. After a while, my spine erected itself and I believe a nimitta came up. It, okay, good. It looked like a, a neon green koi swimming in a murky pond at night. After a while, it disappeared but I found myself being unable to move my body, but able to listen to your words and teachings. I have never heard any teacher describe the state. What could this have been? There was nimitta. It's not the best nimittas, because you know it was this beautiful little light, little green light. You uh, perceived it as a little koi fish, and when it disappeared. You found yourself unable to move my body because the body was comfortable. It's almost like your body's almost disappeared. But still able to listen to the words and teachings. So that is the uh, four senses are just about turned off. 
and the last of senses, sound, still remain because you were interested in the words of the talk. They always say, and it's so true, that the last of the five senses to turn off is sound. That is one of the reasons why when you wake up in the morning, it's usually the alarm clock. The sound penetrates. And if any of you ever get into deep meditation, tell your friends and relations, don't shake you to take you out, just talk in the person's ear. Eileen, it's time to come out of meditation. Eileen, with kindness. You don't shout, Eileen, come out! (laughs) And that's actually how it works, and you've done that. One of these retreats, one of these meditators got into a deep meditation at the end, and it was the end of the retreat. And I was still sitting there. We were all ready to go. It wasn't our retreat centre, so I had to so get him to come out, otherwise we were ready to pick him up and put him in the car. And he wouldn't have known, he'd just come out of his meditation in the car. But no, he didn't know, he just talked to him. He said, Ajahn Brahm, you have to come out of meditation now. And he did come out. Because the sound is the last thing which people uh, turns off and the first thing which comes back so you can get people out of meditation, which is one of the reasons why we have these gongs. So that was an limited state. Well done. Can you explain the doer and the knower? Are they part of the mind? Oh my goodness, yes. You can give a whole talk on this. The doer. I always say that these are the two citadels which you defend to the end. Who you think you are. Every time when... uh, I said this already. Who do you take yourself to be? It's not all the attainments of female, male, so old, young. But you know, more deep than that, who do you take yourself to be? And often it, you take yourself to be the one who does things, the one in control of you. Which is why, you know, in Western worlds, many people just hate authority. It's like taking away part of you. You want to have your choice. At least have lots of freedoms so you can do things. Imagine if you were totally controlled by others. How would you feel about that? It's like you're being destroyed. You're just a slave. Like artificial intelligence. So this is actually where you can see that that is an important part of you. Of who you take yourself to be. And the last part is the one who knows your consciousness. You really think that that's who you are? Who's watching me now? Who's listening to me? Superficially, it appears like that. But when you go deeper, you find that even then the knower is not who you are. Both of these things belong to nature. Especially the knower is conditioned. Totally. Dear Ajahn, I kept on thinking about the Ajahn Char story and the sunset you told us. Oh, this is not the Ajahn Char, this is... uh, Sorry? Lao Tzu, yeah. 
Putting words on the beauty and joy we feel inside can be restrictive, yet does it diminish what it is we mean to share? For example, when we say, I love you to someone, you might try and share that, but do they love you back? A lot of time, a talk I gave a long time ago, there's three types of love. First is the romantic love. And that's actually, please excuse me, but that's kind of the lowest form of love. I love you, darling. But what you really mean, I love the way you make me feel. Because when two people come together, uh, especially in if there's a match there, there are chemicals secreted. And you pick up on those chemicals and it gives you a natural high. I remember this article on the science of love. And it usually lasts two years, roughly. And if you don't have a baby, if you have a baby, it lasts much longer, so more pheromones are secreted to keep you together even longer, to look after the kid. It was, like, it was not romantic at all. But then, after all, I'm a monk, okay? <laughs> and then the other type of love... It's not like the romantic love. And, but when people get married, it often turns into that, into this. Um, like selfless love. Just like when you have parents or, ch- or friends. I really love you. you know, my, you're my friend. I always care about you forever. Not needing to start a family together. That's the more sort of higher sense of like non-attached love. And the third type of love is the best of all. That's what the monks get into, the third type of love. Because if you ever watched a tennis match, the word love means nothing. Why? There's nothing. Love. And that's what the monks get into. So we're not against love. But for us, love means, like the French, zero. Understand? No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) The ghost coming in. Okay. Can you please tell a story about the American man who went to the Royal Temple door all day and was shown around by the old man, oh crikey. Do you want to hear that one? I know there's one person, uh, how, many, how many of you haven't heard that one? How many have? A few of you, but it, it's a fascinating true story. I checked it out many times, it's real. There was this young American, he just finished Peace Corps work in Thailand. And he still wanted to stay there a bit longer and to explore being a temporary monk for a while. He was inspired, so he wanted to be a monk. But what do I do? He was staying in a hotel and the concierge of the hotel said, well, I'm not quite sure... If you want to go to a bar, I know where the bars are and those other places, but go to a monastery. But he said, 
I have seen in this one monastery in Bangkok, Wat Bawan, there are sometimes Western monks there. So maybe try there. But what do I do? Who do I go and see? He said, well, what I would do is I would take a little, some food, you know, some nice cooked hot food. I can help you arrange that. I'm the concierge in the hotel. Go there early in the morning, and when you find the monks coming out on arms round outside the temple, put some of the food in one of the older monks' bowls and say, I want to become a monk. He might help you. So that's what he did. And he turned up outside Wat Bawan. It's a royal temple, had a big wall around it and gates all locked, maybe about four o'clock in the morning. The place was all locked up. He was walking up and down. Hardly anyone was there at that time. Didn't know what to do. So eventually, walking up and down, just getting a bit frustrated, then this Thai man came up to see him and asked him, you know, what do you want? What are you doing? And he told him the story, he wanted to become a monk. And the Thai man said, and the Thai man spoke really good English. And he said, well, look, you come too early. But the Thai man was really kind. He said, look, I can help you. I've got the keys, so I can let you in, show you around. And then in a couple of hours' time, the monks will come out. So he was very happy to have someone kind to talk with and show him around. So he opened the, this gate, big metal gate outside Wat Bawan, and they walked right up to the main hall, the Apostle Hall, and turned on the electric lights. And in these halls in Thailand, they have all these paintings, these murals. And this hall is, you know, maybe 150 years old at the time. And this guy gave him a really good uh, introduction or explanation of what these paintings meant. He was just full of information. Even like who uh, gave them money for that painting, who sponsored it and why. Because sometimes you, when you're, like, you're building a hall, many people want to help. And he said, this one, this was painted by a family, family who lost their son to typhoid or things like that. And anyway, the two hours went by quickly and then the, like the tour guide, the temple attendant, whatever you call him, said, the monks are going to come out soon. Now go to that door over there, go out and go to the door and you'll see like an elderly monk coming out soon and ask him, give him some food and ask him, how do I become a monk? And that's what he did. And so when he went out, uh, the, the attendant locked up, turned off the electric lights, and then just locked everything else up. And just as the old, the, uh, the time man had said, this monk came out, and the American asked him, I want to become a monk, and said, oh, just wait here, when I come back, I'll take you inside, and we can start the training, or just investigate if you can become a monk. So they started the training, long story short, and after a little while, there's many rules you have to learn to become a monk, and the chanting as well, and the procedure. So the monk, the uh, American, was getting more and, much, more and more frustrated. Now the information he was getting from one of these other monks wasn't clear. So when he complained, he said, haven't you got someone else in this monastery 
who can, who can speak better English. And at that, they said, this monk we've assigned to you is the best English speaker in the whole of Watbawan. And that's when the American said, what about that temple attendant I met on the first day? Who showed me, you know, showed me you know, through the gate and into the main hall. And that's when the monks went quiet. There is no temple attendant like that. And you know, because I know that monastery really well, said so that gate you went through, lay people can't go through that gate unless they're royalty. It was called the King's Gate. Wapawan is where the royal family go to be ordained for short periods of time. And only royalty can go through that gate. That's the rule. And no one has got the key to that gate except maybe in the abbot's quarters and no one has the key for the main hall. How on earth did you get in there? And interestingly, you can't turn on the electricity where that temple attendant was supposed to turn on the electricity. So straight away, they didn't look for a better English speaker. They just took this young American to the abbot's place. And the abbot listened for 10 or 15 minutes, stopped him and called for the secretary. So the secretary could write it all down. And this is true. There's the abbot at the time, Sondhyana Sangwara, he didn't know how he could get through that gate. No one has the key, no temple attendant has the key. And also, you know, the key for the main hall, they don't, they're really keen on security. So a layperson can't have that. And then all the stories of the paintings in there, even Sondhyana, the abbot, didn't know all the details of those stories. And of course, in the end, they asked the obvious question, who was that man? And he said, well, he's a Thai man. The one strange thing about him, he was wearing old style Thai dress. That was the only strange thing about him. But what did he look like? And the American man said, well, something like, well, yeah, how do I know? You all look the same. They said, well, give us some help, give us some details. And apparently, the American was just really trying to help because it was a really strange story and he was scratching his head, as Americans do when they're trying to think. <laughs> and he was just looking around and then the American froze. It was him. That was the man. They had a portrait of this man on the wall. King Rama IV. The king who built that temple. Of course, he could go through the royal gate. He was royalty, the king. But he died of over a hundred years previously. I know that person who became a monk and I told that story also in Singapore, in the Thai, um, 
the Thai high, no, that was a Thai embassy. And as I was saying in the Thai embassy in Singapore, the uh, ambassador stood up. said, I just need to say something, Ajahn Brahm, that I am, so said the ambassador, one of the trustees of Wat Bawana. I've seen that story, it's absolutely true. What you said is a pretty accurate record of what happened. Are they? When I was a monk, that was never opened. Except for when the king came for a visit. I don't know why they did that. Things have changed. That was the story. He recognised him. An old royalty in Thailand. Who let him come in so he could become a monk. It's quite a cool story. Anyway, because I'm not doing the questions tomorrow, is it okay if I carry on for a bit longer? Do your mind share? Do you mind sharing your experience, learning, doing, teaching other meditation types, other than Anapanasati, Supakasina, four elements, etc.? Do you find it useful at all, or maybe in certain cases? All the other types of meditation, we always have the, the metta, the kindness in there, because you do it together, the kindfulness. And as super meditation, I told already what happens if you just do a super meditation and you get really too into it, you commit suicide like those monks, you go too far. Casino meditation, I've never been to the casino. Oh, sorry, it's <laughs> The four elements. Four elements I don't like teaching simply because I was a physicist. It doesn't make sense in physics. Instead of four elements, I do the, you know, the four basic forces of nature. But even the four forces, I found that two of them can be connected together. So there's only three basic forces in this world. Well, four elements, sometimes you can do better than that. Other people can teach that, fine. But to me, Anapanasati, and the most important one of kindfulness, Empress Free Questions, that's what I really love doing. And I teach what I know. Can I combine meta meditation and breath with breath meditation? Yes. <laughs> I better do it properly. Many times I set out to repeat a meta mantra in my head only to find that after a while it had synced up with my breath. For example, during the in-breath may, may all be well, during the out-breath may all be happy. I do try to disconnect the mantra from the breath, but generally I'm successful. You don't need to disconnect it. I go along with this and I'm still able to realize deep states of meditation normally only available through breath meditation. No, that's fine. You can combine things. Having loving kindness on your breath is wonderful. Crikey, this is all the same person asking these questions. The handwriting is a shame. So be very careful if you write really embarrassing questions. 
I can find out who wrote them just by check, checking the um, application forms and stuff. Anyway, the example which I have of doing breath meditation with metta meditation, teaching a weekend retreat when I was still a young monk and combining the metta with loving kindness with the breath for the first time. It made breath meditation so easy. My breath, I've got a lot of gratitude for it. It's kept me alive for so many years. My breath allowed me, you know, to build Bodhinyana Monastery and this place too. I was always breathing. And even though I was really tired sometimes, my breath was always there for me. I turned from gratitude to the breath to loving kindness for it. My dear old breath. Sometimes I've abused you, but you're always there for me. It's so easy to have loving kindness towards the breath. So I was just breathing in, dear breath, thank you for being here for me. May you really always be free to breathe in as long or as short as you want. And I won't control you anymore. I'm kind to you. I'm your friend. When I did that the first time, ooh, that really blew me away. And I always remember that evening because I was really exhausted, but really lots of energy through the meditation. And that's why in the evening, you know, I just stayed up late because I had so much energy. But when I went to bed in this little retreat centre, I woke up after a couple of hours in the middle of the night. And I remember how I woke up seen this incredibly beautiful nimitta in my sleep. And I just, <laughs> from loving kindness on the breath, and of course you just, nimitta takes over, you sit up, and that's the end of that sleep. You didn't want to sleep. It's a beautiful meditation. First time you do it, it really is powerful. But I also do the loving kindness on anything. Stories coming, as you can possibly imagine. When I was doing some chanting in a house close to Nolamara, it was so close I didn't need a lift, so I walked back. And as I was walking back, we had our Buddhist Society of West Australia youth group. They were supposed to have finished their meeting together, but they were hanging around a car. So what are you doing? And they said, well, you know, we wanted to go, you know, after the meeting, to the beach. A youth group, you know, to... Uh, have fun together, people the same age. But the boot of the car is locked and can't be opened. It's jammed. We've been trying for half an hour. We can't open it up. We saw you coming. And Ajahn Brahm, I'm sure you've got great powers. Can you please open the boot for us? (laughs) They said that. And if you want to test out the validity of that story. You know Veronica? I saw her the first day. Is she coming around to help, Ronnie? She's down with COVID. She's down with COVID too. Okay. But anyway, at that time, and she's always basically been around our Buddhist society. So, she said, Ajahn Brahm, can you open the car for us? And I said, yes, on one condition. 
if I open the car, the car boot, will you promise to become a bhikkhuni? <laughs> you ask her, it's absolutely true. And she, you know, she thought, well, you had to have Brahma's good monk, but he can't be able to open this car. We've been trying for half an hour. And so I, I said, do you agree? And she said, okay. She thought she had nothing to lose. And then I opened the car boot. <laughs> and she went, ah! <laughs> but, you know, it was using the key, but they tried the key and it never worked. I tried the key, it opened first time. And... She was very upset. <laughs> oh, I don't want to become a bhikkhuni. And then fortunately, another young lady in the youth group, she was a trainee lawyer. And I've got to be really careful when there's lawyers around. Because <laughs> she said to me, yes, she promised to be a, law- uh, a bhikkhuni, but she never said when. <laughs> so she's still a lay person. But I remember that loving kindness can be so strong. Anyway, is it possible for a young child to spontaneously recall his or her past life? Yes. Or at least himself, herself in the intermediate state? Yes. I had a very real dream when I was very young that has since been etched in my mind. I dreamt that I woke up in May in a morgue. I could see my body but could not move it. Growing up in a family of overachievers, I recall waking up and determining to make the most of this life. Decades later, after overachievements, heartbreaks, other tumbles, and oops, I've got the hiccups, and general disillusionment, I now recollect this dream and find myself saying, no more of this, please. Is this a skillful or wholesome resolution? Yeah, why not? I remember this other... Reading this other story years ago of a Thai lady who recollected her past life. And, you know, she looked quite pretty in the picture, but she said, I'm never ever going to get married again. And this life, you know, she lived a single life. She said, it's much more peaceful. She remembered her past life, so she knew what she was abandoning. It was a nice, peaceful life she was living. But sometimes you've got to be careful recollecting your past life. This is a true story, but it's funny. That this lady, she used to come here in the early days. And she was born in a village in Thailand. And she remembered her past life very early on from the beginning. And it was checked out. It was all true. And her son in the previous life had lost his mother. And this was this Thai lady who moved to here, her son was very smart and he became the headmaster of the village school. And no, she, uh, he wasn't her mother anymore. Sorry, I've got to get this right. That this lady wasn't his mother anymore, but was uh, a daughter of one of his friends. So when she grew old enough to go to school, Thai school was really strict. When the teachers come in, you had to stand up. And if you were naughty, you got the cane. And this woman, this girl, when she was maybe five or six, she had to go to the school. 
and she would never stand up for the headmaster. She said, how can I stand up? He was my son. You don't stand up for your son, for your father maybe, but not for your son. And when the headmaster would normally cane anyone for that, the headmaster knew that was my mother in a previous life. How can you cane your mum? He said, so she said she went to school, she did whatever she wanted, as naughty as anything, never stood up for the headmaster, but the headmaster made sure that no one punished her. You, know, you, had, you have to look after your mother. So that's what the headmaster did. She said, I never learned anything, but I had such a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do remember your past life, make sure you don't go to the school where your, your son from a previous life is headmaster. Last question. Can you illustrate with an example of how the components of existence works, in particular experience and perceptions? How about dreams? Are they part of it? It's all part of it, but my goodness, you know, that's a very complicated question. So I say, can you illustrate with an example uh, how they work, in particular experiences and perceptions? You have an experience, but how do you perceive it? Now, a lot of time people see exactly the same thing and they perceive it totally different. You know, you may perceive like, uh, you may perceive like a, um, like a piece of meat. How do you perceive it? If you're a vegetarian, you say, yuck. If you just like meat, you say, oh, yeah, that's nice. Where do those perceptions come from? Those perceptions just come from your upbringing, from your conditioning. What you mentioned about the first time I took some beer, it was disgusting. But those perceptions changed. And then the experience came was I liked it. And then later on, when you became sort of a, a Buddhist, you gave it up again. A good example of perceptions and experiences. Okay, I'm a man, and I just remember just looking at these old photos of like supermodels in the 60s. Uh, sorry? Oh, sorry, Twiggy. Have you ever seen photos of Twiggy? When I was about 14 or 15, I thought, wow, she's so beautiful. When I see a photograph of her now, I said, how can you like that? <laughs> so thin, and just the hair was just not attractive at all. And then I look at these old photographs, old paintings. And actually, to be attractive, you know, 100 years ago, you had to be fat. So any fat women here, you're still beautiful, you just born at the wrong time. <laughs> and any people like Twiggy, 100 years ago, oh, no one would ever sort of think she was beautiful, that she was somehow sick to be looking like that. And I just thought of that, just, you know, what is beauty and what is ugliness? And sometimes it's conditioned by the times. I remember just looking at the photograph of my grandfather when she married my grandma. And I looked at her and said, 
Who would marry that? <laughs> I was being honest because you no know, attraction, the perception of beauty. What is it? Very conditioned by sort of the times in which you live. Anyway, that's enough. Yay! Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, it's 9.26, it's not that late. How many of you go to bed that early in Singapore? <laughs> I just remember just teaching one of the retreats over in, I think it was over in um, Penang. And then teaching over there, and just after I finished, and I just gave it everything I got, then the uh, Bodhinyana group, they went out for, for supper. So I knew tired. If I'd have known you still had some energy left, I'd have given another talk. <laughs> they said, no, the food in that part of Penang was just so delicious, they had to go for supper. Or even in Malacca once, doing a, a retreat or something. And then uh, the Buddhist fellowship, they went out late to get something to eat in Malacca. Apparently you really like the Malaccan food. And when they came back, the gates were all locked. <laughs> they were locked out. And they thought of climbing over the gate. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in Malacca? I wasn't there. Okay, yeah. But Angie was the main culprit. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to ring up and wake up the, the head... Um, not the monk, but the layperson in that centre. He had to get out of bed late in the middle of the night to get the key to open up to let Angie and the other members of the Singapore Buddhist Fellowship in so they could get some rest. And he told me all about it the next day. <laughs> that was kind of funny. I thought it was anyway. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.